When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. About five months ago, I, time is all blurred, I, uh, I was in the market for a mattress and simultaneously I was approached by Avocado Green Mattress to advertise on the podcast. So this is a win-win for me. So I got an Avocado Green Mattress because then I can really speak to it. I've been sleeping on it for five months. I love it. It's so beautiful. I personally got the latex mattress and they have a great offer for you on the mattress I'm sleeping on. Well, not the actual one but on the style. Um, And Avocado Green Mattress, they hand make eco-luxury organic certified mattresses and bedding right in their California factory. The products are so beautiful. However, for me, that's like one half of the equation. The other half, Avocado is a certified B Corp. And what that means is they're climate neutral certified. So that They have a net zero carbon emissions all the way from their farms that they co-own in India to their factory in California, right to the product gets to your home. They are members of the 1% for the planet. So when they say, hey, avocado mattress is better for you, absolutely, but it's also better for the planet. The mattress I have, the latex mattress, is made exclusively with natural organic materials, and that means it's entirely biodegradable. So if you want to have a $200, if you're in the, if you're in the market for a new mattress and you want to save $200 on the avocado latex mattress, just head to avocadogreenmattress.com. And if you punch in the code Gabby Reese at checkout, they will give you $200 off. Uh, it can't be combined with other offers and you've got some time. It's the offer is valid through July 31st, 2021. So you can save on the latex mattress, but head to avocado green mattress and look at all the incredible mattresses and products that they have. This is an example of a company that is doing it right, both in product and in responsible business practices. That's avocadogreenmattress.com. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Gabby, you call you can't. I need some advice. A little bit more. A little bit more. Let's go. All right, that looks great, Gabby. Let's make those legs longer. So, Gene, how's it going with the kids? Uh-huh. 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 Come here. What's your plan? Let's go, Gabby. You want to train with Gabby? Sunil Gupta, thank you so much uh, for for connecting with me uh, across the country. You were just showing me your your snowy um, backyard, and uh, I'm appreciating that snow, you know, all the way in Michigan. Um, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you are, Gabby, being in Hawaii. <laughs> but I'll tell you that that my my daughters were were uh, like just excited about the idea that today might be a snow day. And I don't know if you know this, but there are all these sort of traditions that you do in a place like Michigan. You know, when you're praying for a snow day, you keep a spoon underneath your pillow. You you put ice, you flush ice down the toilet. Have you heard? Have you heard? No. Of okay, this? break this down for me. You have know, two daughters, I mean, I, right? 
I have two daughters. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old, and uh, and there are all these traditions. And we were on we were on Zoom yesterday with my my brother, and he was reminding me about how when we were kids we would do this. So we would we would flush ice down the toilet. We would put a spoon underneath the pillow, and we would put a white crayon in the freezer. <laughs> and these are all sort of symbols to to encourage a snow day. And of course, she wakes up this morning, and Michigan's on top of its game, and they got all the roads plowed oh. immediately, and 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 she's going to school. Yeah, isn't it? it how is it at eight years old, right? It's like any chance to stay home. You'd think after COVID, everyone would be like, "Get me out of this place," you know? I want to get going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, is that, you know, even if she were at home, she would be on zoom, you know, it, it's, it, it's almost like there is no snow day anymore. We have, yeah. we, we've built the infrastructure. Everybody's got sort of plan B's plan C's based on the year that we've been on. Like we, there are no snow days. Yeah. So Sunil, you, you have a really uh, big background. I mean, I, I don't actually know how you've had time to do you know, to be in product development at Groupon and, and you know, Mozilla and then a law degree and then write books. And then, you know, um, now tell me, you're, are you at Harvard? You're, you know, teaching, talking about innovation and things like that. But I want to I want to get into all of that. And you have an exciting book, um, Backable, that uh, you're, you know, you, you've released or you're releasing. Um, and. I really want to start with, well, your mom. Yeah. Because you're, you know, sometimes you see people like you and your brother, uh, for those of people who listening, um, you know, Dr. Gupta is your brother. Um, they see people like you. And, and um, I think this, your mom's story is, is really powerful and important. And, and so maybe you could just share that first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking about her, Gabby. I mean, she really is the the basis for this book. I mean, I had a chance to, one of the, I think, neat things about writing a book is that, you know, people will talk to you and, you know, I've had a chance now to study all sorts of backable people from Oscar winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs, to military leaders, uh, iconic founders. But the story that, that, that really, I mean, is the basis for this book is, is my mom's story. And my mom grew up as a refugee on the border of Pakistan and India. She had no running water, no electricity. And uh, somehow she sort of had this vision, had this dream that one day she was going to move to the United States and she was going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. Because this was the 1940s, early 50s, and Ford Motor Company was was you know was the company. It was it was the only company that she had really heard of in that part of the world. How and did, how did she get a book? Well, first of all, can you edu- yeah. educate me? You know, on this, you're on the border of Pakistan and India. You yeah. know, culturally, what is she? I you know, sort of. You know, is she blending? Because I know that there's a lot of complex dynamics between between that. So, you know, where is she? Yeah. Where's your mom from? Yeah, yeah. She's she's originally from what is now Sindh in Pakistan. Okay. So today, Pakistan, but India was, you know, at one point, India and Pakistan were, were, were one country. And, right. you know, shortly after partition, uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of migration. And, you know, her, her family was one of the families that migrated from current day Pakistan to the other side of the border in India. They ended up in a, in a town in Gujarat called Baroda, 
Um, but before then they were, they were in a refugee camp for you know, quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, it, it, so I think you were, you were asking before about like, you know, how does this all work? I mean, I, I think, you know, in her case, she had a mom who just did whatever she possibly could to make sure that her daughters were not going to have this type of life. Um, and my mom was the oldest daughter and my grandmother saw a lot of drive and ambition in her. And, uh, and so she would just, she was really, she's really an amazing woman. I mean, she would, she would stay up late at night sewing by a kerosene lamp and then taking these goods that she had sewn to this local market and they would travel sort of, you know, miles to get to this market and she would sell these goods and she would save every, every penny that she had to, I think, get my mom into a different place. I don't think that they necessarily expected that that place would be the United States or to go to a company like Ford Motor Company, but you know, my mom used a little bit of that money to, to, to buy a book. And the book that she bought was the biography of Henry Ford. And she read that book from cover to cover. And she was like, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. And so, you know, they, they, they end up, you know, through, through a, a series of miracles, she gets a scholarship to Oklahoma State University of all places and, uh, you know, arrives. She's the only female in her graduating class. The day after she graduates, she goes to Detroit, Michigan, and she applies for a job. Now it's the 1960s at this point, and uh, and she gets in front of a hiring manager, and the hiring manager looks at her, and then he looks at her application, and he's like, "I'm sorry, we we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now." Yeah, how because many again, engineers? It's not like yeah. they had ten engineers. How many engineers did they have? Yeah, no, I mean at that point in time, there were thousands of engineers working at Ford Motor Company. It's astounding, thousands of engineers, and not a single one of them was a woman. And uh, my mom, you know, a little bit confused, uh, you know, she, she gets up, she picks up her resume, she picks up her purse, and she starts to walk out of the room. And then in almost this just last minute, I think, uh, just inspiration, moment of inspiration that she has, she turns around, and she looks this guy in the eyes, and she tells him her story about all the struggle that had to happen in order for her to be in this country, to be in Detroit, to be in this very room with him. And then she says to him, look, if you don't have any female engineers, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And it is in that moment that this, you know, hiring manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world. That's, that's the, you know, to me, you know, I, I, I again, I've, I've told so many stories in this book, but to me, that's the quintessential backable story. Yeah. Well, and you, and you discuss not only being backable, which will, will break down a bit, but you also talk about being someone you're uh, being a backer, like someone yeah. who would take this chance, you know, like this hiring person. And so I think that this is another really important part of the other side of the coin. It's like when we're younger and we're striving, um, you know, we need to be backable. But even along the way, I think it's like having these opportunities, whether it's a younger it, I feel like family sometimes is almost the hardest group to inspire because you're almost too close and they know, you know, they know about your, all your weird cracks, but it could be, you know, a neighbor or if you're on a sports team or let's say you're on a debate team, if there's a younger person, 
Yeah. I think we don't even realize we could start backing people early. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it's such a good point about family as well, especially, <laughs> especially kids, because, you know, I don't think my kids pay attention to really anything that I say, but they're always paying attention to what I do and right? always. And, you know, I think that the, the, you can come at a topic from two points of view. You can either be an expert or you can be a student. I came at this topic as a student and, uh, you know, I am somebody who, uh, who, who, who was starting a company was rejected by every investor that I ever pitched. And are you talking you know, about was, rise or are you with yeah. company? Okay. Yeah. So rise, which rise was a one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching service. And the reason that I started rise is because, you know, I grew up when I grew up, my, my father was very, was very sick. He had diabetes, hypertension, had his first triple bypass surgery when he was in his forties, really early age. Um, but it was through the help of a nutritionist. We were lucky enough that insurance helped cover the cost that he was able to get his life turned around. And the idea behind rise was to match you with a, with a personal nutritionist right over your mobile phone. And, um, you know, I thought that this could be something that could help a lot of people. And so I'm out there you're pitching this idea and I'm just getting rejected by every investor I'm pitching. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what am I, what am I doing wrong here? And that, that, I mean, that was in 2014. And that's when I really started to study backable people, you know, people who didn't necessarily have, you know, necessarily a more commercial idea, um, didn't necessarily have more experience or, you know, a bigger resume, but they were the kinds of people that were able to walk into a room and have people want to take a chance on them. There, there's something about them that when they're in these key moments, interviews, uh, pitch meetings, they just tend to shine. And, uh, and I wanted to understand like, what is that it quality and can it be learned? One of the important things that really stuck out to me when you said this though, is that when you're doing this, especially for an entrepreneur, um, cause ultimately you're asking people to invest time and, and money and, you know, it's, it's also making the idea believable. Yeah. I felt like this was, was a really important thing because we can all dream and we can have the bigger idea behind. Um, and you sort of couple this, um, and I'm not going to step on myself, but and I want to break down a little bit more. Maybe we could jump for a second and, and get into, you know, sort of the narrow vision that you discuss, yeah. but I think that does tie in into having a, a, an idea that's, that is believable for somebody in the beginning. It doesn't mean don't have the giant, huge cosmic dream, but it's almost like keep that not to yourself, but figure out what you're going to lead with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that surprised me, there was so much, but one of the things that surprised me is that when I started spending time with people who are these backers, so these are people who are, are you know, constantly try, ha having to pick and choose that could be amongst a field of candidates that could be amongst a, you know, a field of people who are, who are uh, auditioning for a role. Um, and of course, investors are saying no to, you know, more than 99% of the ideas that they hear on average. So they're constantly trying to find that one. And what I, what I, what I assumed is that people who are in these roles tend to be sort of risk takers. They're looking to, they're looking to take risk. And what I, what I concluded with is that they sometimes do take risk, but only when absolutely necessary. For the most part, 
These are people who try to avoid risk. They accept it as part of their job, but they're not necessarily looking to take risk. And the reason that that matters is because, you know, as human beings, the fear of betting on a bad decision, the fear of making the wrong choice is twice as powerful as the pleasure that we get from making the right choice. And so when you're walking into a room with, you know, anyone and you're trying to pitch a new idea, I think we can sometimes make the mistake of talking just about how new it is, right? Because we're very excited about it and we start to sell the possibility of it. But we also need to address the risk because if we don't address the risk, that's going to be something that's just going to nag at people. And we address that risk really in a, in a few different ways. But one of the techniques that really stuck with me from this book is to steer directly into the objections of an idea. Right. So again, you can't, you don't just want to own the strengths of, of yourself as a candidate or the idea that you're presenting. You also want to talk about the reasons why they may say no. And you want to bring those up yourself. And the reason for that is because sometimes they won't bring it up and they just may, they may let it pass. And if they do, then that may end up being the reason that they say no. And you never really had a chance to confront it head on. Right. I think it's, I think that's an important lesson in so many ways. I even think, you know, you could take, I mean, certainly, you know, coming from sports, when you go to practice, you know, you're working on what you're not good at. You're always looking at that and being like, okay, and, and solving it slowly, right? You're never just, usually it doesn't come in a fell swoop. It's usually like you're working on it, you're working on it. Um, and I think it's just helpful in life. I think in relationships, you could say to somebody, hey, this is hard for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to keep looking at it. And it it does open up a lot of, uh, you know, communication and and uh, and also more opportunity for you to be less afraid of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think one of the things that we one of the reasons we don't do this, one of the reasons we don't bring up our own weaknesses or our own objections is because we're afraid we won't have the perfect answer to that. Mm-hmm. We feel like in order to bring it up. We need to be able to answer it in, in, in a way that's completely satisfactory. And the truth is that there's an incredible power when you can sit across the table from somebody and you can sort of point out the things that probably are on their mind. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a large degree of empathy that goes into putting yourself in another person's shoes and saying, all right, why would they be excited about this idea? But also, what would they, what would they, why wouldn't they be excited about this idea? What would be on the top of their mind? If you can proactively point that stuff out, then your answer doesn't necessarily need to be perfect. But what it does do is it at least stops that thing from nagging at them so that they will tune in to the stronger parts of what you have to say. Right. And right. It's that trust. That's so you've been yeah. on all sides of it. You, you were at Kleiner Perkins. So you have people pitching you, you were doing, you did rise, you know, you dealt with rejection there, I guess, you know, what, first of all, which part do you enjoy? Is there a part that you enjoy more? I mean, coming up with ideas is always, it just takes a little longer, obviously, but what, mm-hmm. what part of that, of those processes, um, were you like, oh yeah, that, that was like, that's more me. Yeah. I, I think it's pro- it's definitely much more on the entrepreneur side than it is on the, on the backer side. I enjoy, I enjoy building things, but what I've sort of fallen into over the past few years is that I've just, I've, I've fallen in love with teaching 
Like I'm a, I'm a teacher first. I, I, there's nothing more exciting to me than going into a classroom or going into even, you know, a corporation where people are, you know, wanting to learn something new um, and just, and just uh, sharing very openly all of the mistakes, all of the many, many mistakes that I have made. Um, and just saying like, Hey, if I had to go back and do it all over again, this is what I would have done because there's, there's, there's some real power to that. I also think that, you know, there's no shortage of, of people out there who, um, are telling you that you can do it. There's no shortage of motivational books out there, but for some reason, I feel like there can, it can never really be enough of that, you know, for me to go in to, you know, in front of a group of people who are thinking about running with their own ideas that have something, you know, we, and I, I believe we all really kind of have an idea tucked away somewhere and to be able to say like, Hey, you know, I hid my ideas from the world for a very long time as well. Um, but when I started to put them out there, what I realized was that most people who changed the world were not really ready to do what they did. You know, like a 15 year old from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to lead an environmental movement, but Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's you know, youngest person of the year. Three friends from design school weren't ready to start Airbnb. A hedge fund manager from Wall Street wasn't ready to start Amazon. Now, they weren't really ready to do what they did, but they just kind of did it. And I feel like that message can't be reinforced enough. Do you, when, you know, I, I find it fascinating when it's like you're working in a, in a big company and you, you work on innovation or you're teaching innovation when innovation feels like something that is also, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like it's an, an enigma in itself. <laughs> What's the framework? What's the discussion around approaching innovation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so much is out there about how to come up with ideas. I, I, I don't think there's enough about how to then take that idea into, and then by the way, there's also a lot out there about scaling ideas. So once an idea is really out into the world and it's working, how do you make it big? But there's that tricky sort of in-between stage where you have something you're excited about, but how do you get other people excited about it? I and mean, what I realized is that, you know, we tend to think of innovation as a two-step formula. You come up with a great idea and you execute on it really well, but there's that hidden step in between where you get these early people to buy into it, even when it's half-baked, even when you don't know, like it's, it's success is far from guaranteed, but they still believe. And, and that's, that's, that has been the formula, not just for every great startup, but every great organization, every great movement, every great nonprofit. It all began with a few people who said, you know what, I think there might be something here. And so the question that I think we all have to answer as you know, innovators is how do we get those few early people to believe even before we know it's going to work? Yeah. And you even you, you you even use that as an example, like in social context was like a Martin Luther King. Like you're not just talking about business. You're talking it could be on in sort of other dimensions where it's like a social movement, anything where we all need, you know, these early believe, you know, believing backers to say, OK, and then go to the next step. And I think that that's a really important uh point in innovation, which is we have these ideas and they can actually end up being so much bigger, richer, and fuller than we have, we have the capacity at that time to imagine, but it, it's also going through the steps. And then the flip side of that is, and, and you discussed this a lot is 
sometimes you have to, you gotta, it's, you gotta pull out. Like sometimes it's, it's, you, you take it down a path, you learn the lessons and you realize it's not going to happen. And I, I really, you know, this is a hard thing I was watching or reading something. I mean, it's, it's a weird example, but Ralph Lauren, they would, you know, he's really intense about like inspiration, right? They would create an inspiration room, not a board. They'd get mm-hmm. sort of 40% down the road. He'd take a trip. He'd see something and say, you know what, it's wrong. And they'd have to pull that whole thing. And this is obviously someone who has proven success, but, but everyone around him, these believing backers said, well, because we believe in him and we trusted him, we would order new material, order, you know, all these things. And, and so I think it's also important to, to remind people, like, it's okay to say, oh, this isn't working. It's yeah. hard to do. I always say when you do business too, you have to pretend like nobody cares. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, cause we think it's a great idea and then we convince everyone around us and it's so important, but sometimes yeah. also, and this also, I think this helps making it more believable is also why should anyone care about, right. you know, what you're doing? And, and um, that's, what's interesting about entrepreneurs and innovation is they're not seeing all of your failures. You know, yeah. you're writing books on being backable. You're teaching at Harvard. You've had all these other, you know, illustrious jobs, but they're not seeing you know, these other parts, what, what is it for you personally, at least that you sort of say, Oh, I, I'm going to keep going though. Like, what's the thing in you? What is that? Is it Mm. faith? Is it, um, you've just seen enough people, you know, make it happen. Like, where do you get that kind of belief? Yeah. 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 I, I think what we're talking about here is conviction. How do you develop conviction? And conviction, you know, I think is is was was a word and and sort of a concept. That kind of knew, I mean, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't realize how important it was when it comes to, I think, you know, entrepreneurial success. And I think in terms of making yourself backable. I mean, as it turns out, it's not it's not charisma that convinces people, it's conviction. You know, I, I expected when I was gonna write this book that I was gonna find that backable people you know, had a certain communication style. They talked with their hands, they made great eye contact, they made great use of pacing. That couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, you know, you have backable people who are extroverted and gregarious, and then you have backable people who are very quiet and very shy and would 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 do very poorly in a Dale Carnegie course, but but they're incredibly backable. And, and you know, in fact, one one great example is if you if you go Google the most popular TED Talk of all time, Today, it's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson who gives a talk on creativity in schools. It's a masterful talk. I, I love this talk, but it, it is a very unted-like presentation. He's got a hand in his pocket. He's got a bit of a slouch. He kind of meanders around his script, and it. But but it's but it's. There's no doubt in your mind that he believes everything that he is saying. And so I think that's the that's the key, you know, for me, which is like finding time to build conviction in your own ideas, finding time to convince yourself first before you go out and try to convince others. Because how often is it that, you know, we come up with an idea and like we want to share it immediately because we're excited about it. We're like, oh my God, I got to go share this with so-and-so. So I've made the mistake sometimes of like going and pitching an investor immediately on an idea. I'm like, you know what? This has got to go. It's really exciting. Let me get in front of somebody as, as quickly as possible and share the idea. And then I don't get the reaction 
that I'm looking for, and it's deflating. You know, one of the one of the uh, one of the studies that we did was how innovation works inside big companies. So if you're a junior level employee, you're not making the decisions, but you have you have influence, but you don't have authority. How do you how do you get ideas made? And what we found is that way more ideas ideas typically don't get killed inside the conference room. They typically get get killed inside hallways, around water coolers through casual conversations. Because what ends up happening is that we get really excited about our idea. We rush into work that morning. We share it with a colleague or we jump on Zoom and we're like, hey, you're never going to believe this. I came with the best idea. And their reaction isn't as, isn't, it doesn't meet our level of energy. And so we put it in a drawer and we sort of walk away. When on the other hand, backable people tend to cultivate their own ideas first. They, it's as simple as sometimes pulling out a piece of paper and doing a Q&A starting to ask the questions that you might ask if you were on the other side of the table, if you were hearing the idea, and then answering those questions as best as you can. That starts to build conviction in your own idea. And then back to your question, Gabby, this also gets you to the point where you start to kind of poke holes in your own idea and start to think to yourself like, hey, like, is this something that I am building conviction with? Or is this something that I'm losing conviction with? Is my energy or enthusiasm for the idea as I go through this exercise, is it going up or is it going down? And if it's going down, then yeah, maybe maybe you need to 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 riff on it a little bit. Doesn't necessarily mean you kill the idea altogether, but maybe you're riffing on it and changing it a little bit or addressing those open questions before you go out and share it with others. And I, I've heard you say something else connected to this, um, which is if you started uh, something, um, and I really thought this was such a valuable uh, insight is to get feedback, don't make the stakes so high. And I think that yeah. it's like, once you have your conviction and you've baked it, you've even, I don't wanna, you know, I, I saw something or read something where you talked about, you know, if you're the founder and CEO of Rise and then you go to, to you know, your outside Weight Watchers or wherever you were and you're asking for input and you're saying, I'm the creator and the CEO, people won't tell you. But if you're like, I sort of part time work for this group, you know, what's your experience or what was that? I thought this was a really important um, way for people to get more information and feedback about what they're doing. So maybe you could just. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah, yeah. maybe stabs in your eye, but it's like, what do you want? <laughs> do you, you know, do you want long-term really good feedback? And that, and this is the thing, all this is, you know, it's applicable to everything in life. It's like, do you want me to tell you the truth? It's like, oh, yeah. it's going to hurt, but I know in the long run, it's better. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. And that's true. That's true across any field, across any 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 backable, any extraordinary person I've studied. Now, they have gone through short-term embarrassment to get to long-term success. And the question is, where does that embarrassment really come from? And I think that's where you have an opportunity to to play what I call in the book exhibition matches. So these are low-stakes situations where you can be embarrassed and it's okay. And so finding a group of people that you can start to share your ideas, share your vision uh, with, uh, who are gonna give you sort of the feedback that you need um, in order to get ready for these, the real match. Um, people, who, people who are backable tend to play lots and lots of exhibition matches 
before they get into a room. Again, that can be for an interview, that can be for a sales pitch, that can be for a fundraising meeting. Um, and the other thing that I noticed related to this is that they tend to surround themselves with a group of people. And it's kind of like their go-to circle of people, the backable circle. And after studying these circles, what I realized is that there tends to be four types of people that every backable circle tends to have. And I call it the four C's. So the first C is your collaborator. So this is a person in your life who, when you share an idea with them, they're, they're kind of building on top of it. They're like the, they're like the yes and person. Um, you almost feel like you're in a musical jam session with them. That's your collaborator. The second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is going to help you understand if your idea fits the world, your coach is really someone who's going to help you understand if your idea fits you. Because there are plenty of great ideas out there that are great from somebody else, but they don't really necessarily match who you are. I, I, my, my wife is, is, will always tell me like, okay, that's an interesting idea, but do you really want to go run with that? Because that doesn't sound like something you really want to go run with. I know you and like, that's, you're not going to have fun with that. Um, so your coach is, is really important too. The third is your cheerleader. And you're, that's pretty self-explanatory. This is somebody who's gonna who's gonna you know give you that last-minute boost of confidence, and it's a it can be a little bit cheesy, but we need this in our lives, right? I mean, this is not going to be the person who's poking holes in your ideas, but you know it's funny. I talked to uh, Ellen Levy, who Fast Company magazine named the the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. And she, her Rolodex has members of Congress and Fortune 500 CEOs. And I asked her before you walk into a big meeting who do you call? And she's, she's like, that's easy. That's my mom. I call my mom before I walk into a big meeting. So your cheerleader, really, really important. But the fourth, I think is the most important. So just to review, you got our collaborator, we have our coach, we have our cheerleader. And the fourth is your critic. But I call this person my cheddar. And the reason I call this person my cheddar is because if you've ever watched the movie Eight Mile, I'm here in, yes. you know, outside of Detroit. I love this movie. Eminem is surrounded by a group of friends who are like his yes men. Mm -hmm. But there's one friend in the movie whose name is Cheddar, who is always poking holes in Eminem's ideas. And what we find throughout watching the film is that it's really Cheddar that gets Eminem prepared for what he needs to go do. And so this is a person who's constantly poking holes in your ideas. They're, they're constantly saying, yeah, but what about this? And, or did you ever think of that? And it's annoying. It really is in the moment annoying to have this person in your life, but the cheddar, your cheddar is really the person who's going to help you prepare for that big moment, because these are the questions that are coming your way anyway. It might as well come on your own terms. Yeah. I think, I think it's, a, it's such an interesting idea because you don't want to have just people around you that are poking holes in you, not yes, friends, but that beautiful mixture of, you know, all of those things. Cause it, that process it's for anything. It's, it's really, uh, you know, I think it's, that's what makes it scary for people is, is because it's like, okay, how do I start? How do I find my conviction? How do I make it match me? Yeah. And then how do I create an environment that I'm, that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, making sure that I'm manning all the areas, which is my emotional, keeping my emotions high and positive. Mm -hmm. Cause you get, you get, you know, beat down quite a bit and it's, 
you know, it's not only the conviction that can keep you going, but it is, it is, you know, it would be your cheerleader for sure. Yeah. Did yeah. you, you know, when I look at, I'm always amazed. I'm an only child and I have uh, three daughters, you know, two, one is, is even though she wasn't my biological, she's my daughter, she was between two homes. So she wasn't in the home all the time. And then the younger two were together all the time. And, and I, you know, often was, um, you know, baffled by siblings and all of these things. And, and when I was looking at you and your brother, it's what I was interested in is you also seem like a big advocate, um, you know, for your brother and his success. I'm, I'm curious how you have your own real estate. Cause I think this can be in friendships and mm -hmm. relationships. How do you have your own real estate different than someone who's incredibly close to you and celebrate their victories? Like, did that, was that in like your parents saying, Hey, you have to love each other and we're in this together and we're family. <laughs> you know, did you be, you know, did you, as teenagers, were you, you know, really, you know, rubbing, smashing elbows. Like what, what was it for you guys? Because it, to see it, you go, wow, what a beautifully adjusted family, you know? And, and you, I'm always, I'm always incredibly interested, like what's under the hood on that. Oh, if you think we're beautifully adjusted, you should just come to Thanksgiving dinner one time. It'll change. Oh, and you all have daughters. That's what I love is you oh, and yeah, yeah. only have daughters. Yes. Yes. So yeah. And it, it, we, we come from, my father had four brothers, you know, is it, but, but then, but then all of a sudden it's just been, it's, it's, I mean, my brother has three daughters. I have two. So we're like, you know, on pace to create like the world's shortest female basketball team. But, you know, I, you know, Sanjay is 10 years older than me. And, uh, and so there's always was? sort of been, was that, yeah, I think you I was, you know, I, I think I was, but, never my parents, admitted, but they never admit it. I, but I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think I was, I think he, you know, on that note, I think he was too. And so we're both kind of we, 10 years apart, but we're both kind of share, we both share that. But I, I think, you know, it's funny for me to think that, you know, my daughter is approaching the age that my brother was when, when I was born, because I remember as a child, just thinking he was, he was effectively an adult, but the reality was that he was maybe 12, 13 years old by the time I could really, you know, start to understand what was happening here. And, and he, you know, he, he really took really good care of me. And, and, and I do think it was much more of a third parent sort of relationship. And that, and that changed, that changed over time, you know, as we got older and, you know, I became best man in his wedding and he was best man in mine, you know, it starts to feel like much more of a sibling relationship. And I guess, you know, to me, Sanjay's, Sanjay's my teacher, you know, he and, he, and he always has been, I think he always will be there. There's not a single time that I, I can remember sort of getting on the phone with him or zoom or, or visiting him or, or I just, I don't learn something every time. And I think to answer your question, I mean, there is a concept in Hinduism uh, called mudita, mudita, which is, which is sympathetic joy it stands for, you know, how do we have, how do we have joy for, for each other? And I think that we were kind of part of a household where we were really, we were, we were cheering each other on, you know, and I still remember when Sanjay was, you know, in his, in his twenties and he had just graduated from his, he had just finished his, his, his surgical program and he was now a practicing surgeon in, in Michigan. Um, and I could just tell that, you know, he was enjoying his job, but it wasn't really setting him on fire. 
And I still remember, and I was in college at this time and he came home and he was like, you know, I, I think I want to like go do something in the media. And, you know, I think that, you know, I would love to be on air, you know, doing, doing that type of work and telling stories about what's happening in healthcare. And I, and I just remember like us being around a table, my mom being like, all right, well then you go, go do it. You know, don't, don't, don't hesitate. There's, there's no such thing as impossible and just like, go do it and, uh, and go figure out a way to do it. And, and it, 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 it was, it's always kind of been, and he did, you know, I mean, he, he, he literally went yeah. to CNN and he interviewed for the role. And while he had zero on air experience, uh, you know, he was able to, I think, tell the stories that he had seen as a frontline doctor. And it was those stories that got people really interested. And, you know, he used this idea that in the book, I talk about the importance of what we call an earned secret, right? Something that you have found through your own experiences that other people may not know. And the power, whether you're walking into a job interview or you're walking into a fundraising pitch to share an earned secret, share something that you've discovered that it really has a way of resonating with people. It really has a way of capturing people's attention. It's exactly what he did when he went to CNN and, and when he got the job, we were, you know, we were all, we were all kind of like, I mean, first of all, stunned and, 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 and wow, like that's amazing. And, uh, and, and then just to see what he's done with it all along. I, I, again, I feel like I'm learning something new every day. Do you think between your mom and your brother and you having the benefit of observing just being a little younger yeah. Did it open even the possibilities you thought, like, oh, wait, life is like this, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's, you know, and then the scope gets wider and you realize, wow, maybe it's a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, for, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, my mom coming from the background that she came from, you know, um, I think makes you take a look at risk in a different way. You know, I, I get a lot of credit, but I don't think that I really deserve as an entrepreneur for taking risk or I, you know, I ran for public office and I got a lot of people saying like, wow, that's a really like risky thing to do. Like good for you for taking that risk. And I would say to myself, like, I, yeah, I mean, I do think that there's some risk associated with that, but the risk isn't that I'm going to lose, you know, the roof over my head. It's not that I'm not going to be able to eat or that my family is really going to suffer. I feel lucky enough that like, even if I failed, none of that stuff is really going to happen. The worst thing that's going to happen is that I don't get an opportunity, right? And imagine just like what a privileged place that is. Whereas with my mom, like, I don't know what would have happened what really would have happened had she really tried to get that job and it didn't, didn't work yeah. and she didn't have a salary and she didn't have status inside the country. Like what, I mean, what, what would she have done for, for food? I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And, and so, you know, I guess, I guess coming from the story that I think we come from, and I think we, by the way, I think we all have the version of this story in our families um, that, you know, when we compare that, when we compare to where we are right now, and we look at sort of the risk profile that we're taking, I think it can be, I think it can be very emboldening to sort of think about the idea that I think at least for the vast majority of us, you know, taking that risk, um, you know, if it, if it works, it's wonderful. And if it doesn't, it's experience. And you, you share this where you, if you're going into a big meeting and you, you sort of have all of these uh, strong emotions You've, you've even have a way of saying, okay, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to break <laughs> it down. 
I, I think you offer, I think this idea of being a teacher is, uh, is so true because you, you even, I don't want to say you automatize, but you, in a certain way, you, you've really, you break, you break things down and, and encourage people to sort of say, okay, well, you're doing X. So you're pitching an idea that feels really important to you, but you're responding to all these other things. Like if I don't get the, if I fail or if yeah. my, you know, and then you even, I think it was like, okay, I'm, my family's going to, my wife will leave me, won't like me. I'm gonna <laughs> die. And that like, in a way you're inappropriately responding. And so I yeah. really appreciate how you even dissect that part of it. Cause that's what we do. We take everything and, you know, sort of mush it together. And it's like, well, no, that that all of that's not going to happen if this yeah. doesn't work in this pitch. And I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. I think sometimes I, you know, and Gabby, I would be really fascinated to hear about this from your point of view as an athlete as well. It's just like, is, is like, you know, when you're going into a big moment, you know, or you're going into a moment that matters. I think sometimes we make the mistake of making, you know, believing that we need to be really, really intense in order to perform really well. Mm -hmm. um, we need to sort of, I think, gear ourselves up to, to, to say, Hey, the stakes are really high for this moment. But what I, what I realize is that a lot of backable people will do the reverse. They'll actually lower the stakes for a moment in order to get to that level of calm that you actually need in order to perform really well. And that was not an obvious thing for me. Again, I, I, I felt like I was the kind of person who wanted to just be really intense. And I felt like intensity was what won the day. But when I got too intense, what I realized is that I got way nervous, way too nervous. And, and when I got way too nervous, I wasn't performing very well. So the story that you were talking about was when I was, uh, when I was, I had a meeting with Apple and this is when, after the company had been funded and, you know, it was like for a baby startup that is running out of money, if you get, if you get a meeting with Apple, it yeah. can be a really big deal. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in my car driving from San Francisco where I was living at the time to Cupertino and I get an email and, and I'm checking my phone at the stoplight and I get an email and the email says, Hey, you know, Tim Cook is, is likely going to be in this meeting as well. He's really interested in healthcare. You're doing a healthcare company. He might be interested. He might be in this meeting. And, and I don't know what it was about that email, but I mean, well, I, now I do know what it was, what it was about that email, but like I, on the way to Cupertino, I just started to freak out. And by the time I pulled into the parking lot, I was having, you know, really just this full out sort of panic attack where, where I was like, I'm going to blow this meeting and, and I'm going to blow this up, huge opportunity that we have. And, I'm, and, and it's just, it's in, as a result of that, like all this stuff is going to happen. And I remembered a technique that uh, a friend and a mentor of mine taught me, which is called the, if true, then technique. And basically what I did is I pulled out a piece of paper and at the top of the piece of paper, I wrote I'm going to blow this meeting. And then I wrote, okay, if that's true, then what? And I wrote and I responded and I said, well, if I blow this meeting, then we're not going to partner. We're not going to have any kind of partnership with Apple. And then I said, okay, if true, then what? And I said, well, then the company is my company. My startup is not going to do well. And then I said, okay, if that's true, then what? Then I'm going to have to lay people off. Right. And if true, then what? Then you're going to be a failure. And if true, then what? No one's going to want to hire you again. No one's going to want to work with you again. And if true, then what? Well, you're going to become bitter and your wife is going to leave you. And like you're no one's going to love you anymore. Right. 
And that's like rock bottom. That's at the bottom of the page. I got to this rock bottom feeling that I was feeling. And just like, no, no, no wonder I, I was having a panic attack. I literally felt, you know, in this, in this really um, tricky way, my mind had convinced me that if I blow this meeting, I was going to lose my family. Right. And the reality is like, yeah, it is a, it is an important meeting, but I'm not going to lose my family as a result of that. So lowering the stakes to the appropriate place, not lower than it needs to be, not being, not being indifferent, but lowering the stakes to an appropriate level so that you understand kind of what's happening and you're not bringing more baggage into the meeting than you need to, you need to bring. I also think with, with techniques like that, it's not only helpful, but if you do the other things that you're talking about, if you have, you know, that conviction, if you, uh, you know, if you do the other work, if you have people, you know, punching holes in your, in your idea, um, I think that makes going into those situations, you know, you've, you've had your preseason games, if you will. I think that then coming at it in a genuine and, as yourself way, who's informed, because even what you're talking about with your brother an earned secret means you've done the work, you've been around the block, people can smell that you know what you're talking about. And I think it's so important that people realize that if we go with just this idea, there's a lot of air and excitement, but if you can do all these other things, you build in these layers that make you, uh, you know, it, it not only makes you, you know, believable, it just allows you to be, do it the way that who you, as you are, not yes. as you think you should be, because once you grind it out and do all the work, you're like, here it is. This is what I know. And I think that this was really in, important. Um, there's a, there's a couple things that I, I want to get to that you talk about in business um, and also your, your personal practice. Cause I love that you're such a teacher that you even teach yoga. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and real quick on that, on that last point, cause it's such an important one, Gabby is, is that, is that, you know, Charlie Parker has this great quote, which is that you know, so, someone asked him like, how do you have such a strong presence on stage? Because he was a teacher, like he, he not only did he, was he a great player, but he, he was a mentor and a teacher to all the other jazz musicians. And Charlie Parker said, you know, it's, it's, I, you practice, practice, practice. And then when you get up on stage, you forget all of that and you just wail. And I love that quote because, you know, again, like we see people, you you brought this up earlier. We see people who are in their polished state and we kind of just assume sometimes that they're just naturally that way. But backable people are not born, they're made. They came from lots and lots and lots of practice that the average, the, the average number of times that I saw backable people practice before a big moment was 21 times. 21 times before a big speech, 21 times before a big pitch, 21 practice rounds. And I thought to myself, that seems a little excessive to do anything like that 21 times. But, and I also worried that by doing something 21 times, doesn't that make you kind of come off as robotic and almost too rehearsed and practiced? But what I found by putting in this to practice myself is that it does, and it does the opposite. It actually makes you much more natural. Because what happens is that if you have that level of mastery over your material, then you're not focused anymore about like, okay, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, I'm going to say that. You're no longer running through that mental outline in your head. What you're able to do is be fully present with the person you are talking to. And when you, 
when you have that fully, when you have that full presence, what you can do is attack, you can adapt to what's happening inside the room. You can adapt to the way they're reacting. You can adapt to things that will inevitably come up. You know, the projector goes out or, you know, there's poor zoom connection, something happens, but you can adapt and you can roll with the punches because you have that level of mastery that only comes with practicing, 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 and then just forgetting all about all that and just wail. Yeah. It's, I think that there's something so beautiful about understanding something so much that, you know, actually all the ways you've even seen, I can use your brother as an example. If you, if you really have done the work um, or for you, if you've teach yoga, you know, you kind of know every which way people are going to do downward dog wrong. That's how well you know it. You don't, you're not just talking about, Hey, I know how to teach it. Right. I actually have seen all the ways that people do it wrong. It's being that intimate with things that you go, this might happen. So let's talk about this. And I I think um, people undervalue uh, always being the student. I think when I, when I was getting ready for this conversation, what kept showing up for me was you're a teacher because you're the ultimate student. I believe, you know, if you're really interesting and always learning and you talk about innovation, by teaching, you have to, you're forced to expand because you can't just do the same, same all the time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and there, and people don't realize that's when you get to the really good stuff. Mm. Yeah. And you learn, like if you're teaching someone, then they show you something new. And, and that exchange also, I, I, I think is, is really, really so powerful. So you, there was a couple things that really resonated with me and and I'm not going to cannibalize your book, but you, you, you talk about, um, someone, uh, I I don't, I can't remember maybe Brad Feld or something talking to you about learning to, um, dance with your doubt. And we sort of just touched upon it when you kind of analyze, well, what am I responding to? But I thought this was really important because you talked about sort of not pushing doubt out, but bringing it in and pulling it in. And and this, this is a great reminder. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, fear is something that we continue to sort of almost play ping pong with. It comes at us, we bat it away. It comes back at us, we bat it away, right? And you know, it's, it was surprising to me to see how many how many people like Brad would actually sort of pull their fear in and sort of just examine it and say, you know what, what, what's this really all about? And is that true? Like, I mean, and and that technique that we talked about, that if true then technique, is, is such an easy way to do that. To say, okay, fear, like let's say that what you're saying does come true, then what, then what's going to happen? And just starting to kind of pull it closer and closer and closer and just turn, turn to turn to really inspect it. And I think what we start to realize is that it's not completely unfounded, but it's got very loose footing. It's not nearly as certain as we think it's going to be. And yet it has incredible power over us. And so if we can pull it in and, and I think examine it, what, what we're able to do is at least I think um, contextualize it to the size that it really is, right? Uh, the basis that it really has, rather than letting it be have it have a disproportionate effect on us. Yeah, I think, I, and because people are doing this all the time, you know, that's that's just I think that's how we're living. It's like, oh, pack that feeling down and let's be brave. It's like, 
well, no, we get empowered when we can be like, oh, oh, I'm feeling bumpy and unsure. So let me take a look yeah. at that. Um, and part of that, part of that too, is, is honestly just like realizing that if, if there is a no in this room, there, there's, there's almost always another room. Like there's almost always another backer out there. And I, I think that sometimes, you know, it's easy to forget that, you know, like there's the, one of the stories that comes to mind right now, um, especially in light of, you know, what's happening with coronavirus is the story of penicillin. There was a guy named Dr. Alfred Fleming who came up with the cure for infection which was penicillin. And this was in the 1910s. It was like 1917, 18 that he came up with this idea. And so he gets really excited and he goes out and he shares this with a group of investors and they don't respond to it. They kind of reject him. And uh, it's, you know, it was, it was all on a night in London and he walks out of that meeting and just sort of puts it on a shelf and never picks it up again. Um, until 10 years later, when another physician comes along and says, you know what, that guy, Alexander Fleming, he might actually be onto something. And so they pick up the invention and they look at it and they realize he does. But the problem was that over that past over that 10 years, hundreds of thousands of people had died from infection. Hundreds of thousands of people had died from a problem that actually already had a solution. And so the point is that there are so many great ideas out there that get rejected. So many. I mean, every major company right now has gone through rejection before. People said no to Instagram, said no to Google, said no to, no to Facebook, and they said no to, to groundbreaking cures like, like penicillin. And I'm sure that there is something out there right now that could be a huge game changer for us with this fight against coronavirus pandemic. And, and we, we just don't know it yet because that person's not having much luck inside the room. It's, it's a really important point. You know, it's like someone says, you just haven't found your tribe yet, your group for you, you're, you're maybe it would be like, well, you just haven't found your backers yet. The, the backers that see you and, and, and understand um, that idea. Do you, you know, one would listen to you and, and um, you know, you're, you, you can break it down so easily. You're, you're very relaxed. I'm curious between your yoga practice and, you know, other things when it comes to your everyday life, do you have, because you have a family, you have, you know, you have two young daughters, things are hectic. Um, do you have any things that you're personally sort of going like, Oh, I didn't realize I'm going to work on that now because, um, that, that can push my buttons. Because someone, someone would hear you and think, oh, that guy just is all, you know, floating, zenning through life, <laughs> dialed. Like, where is it where you, where, you know, maybe you lay your head in the pillow at night and you go, oh, yeah, I got to work on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, all, all, all the time. I mean, you know, even even just getting ready for this, you know, podcast, I was starting to feel feel anxiety, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, Gabby, I, I was listening to your shows. And I was listening to your questions. I'm like, you know, she asked really good questions. And just, you know, what if I what if I don't have the answer to that, you know, and I and I, and I feel that all I feel that all the time. I mean, I think, you know, I think this idea of trying to push out discomfort is something that I don't try to do anymore because I just don't think that there's an I don't think there's a destination to that. I don't think I, I will ever get to a point where I'm just comfortable. Um, but I think that you have to, I mean, I think over time with enough practice, you start to get a little bit more comfortable with the discomfort. 
you start to kind of accept that as sort of a way of, of, of living. Like I, I'm I, there, are, there, are, even in this conversation, Gabby, there have been points where I've been uncomfortable, but I try to do my best to uh, notice that. First of all, I will be getting back to what we were talking about with fear. I think if you, if you try to ignore it, it has a way of sort of growing. And I think just noticing that, Oh, hmm, it's a little bit of discomfort that just popped up there. Um, and just naming it, I think has been very, very helpful. And well, I think, you know, and I think also for me, just, just like, I have found a tremendous power in just writing. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer. I spend most of my time writing books now, but I'm, I spend, I spend time every day just trying to write down free form what's going through my mind. And that can be in the morning, that can be at night, but, and it doesn't have to be for long, but like 15 minutes just to kind of get what's inside my head, all the anxiety and, and, and sort of, I think negative thoughts that, that inevitably pop up and just put them down on paper without arguing the other side, without saying, ah, yeah, well, you're being too hard on yourself or anything like that. Just, just literally just giving it a voice, just letting it, just letting it flow out of you. I've found there to be, I mean, it's not a, it's not a bulletproof answer, but there's tremendous power to just naming it. I mean, just, yeah, I think the, the phrase goes like, you got to name it in order to tame it. Yeah. And you, you even sort of brush on that where you talk about in business, where it's mastering your own psychology. You, you talk yeah. about, it feels like that's tied into that. It's like, it's not saying, Oh, why am I not these things? And why am I reacting that? But it's managing and sort of mastering your own natural psychology. I think that that's a really powerful tool. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I mean, I think so. And it's so, it, 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 I don't think we do it alone. I really don't. I, I, you know, backable, I don't think is a, is a is sort of solo exercise. I think you do have to find your people. You do have to find that circle that we were talking about before the four C's, these people who can sort of kind of be with you along the journey, because look, it's hard. It doesn't matter if you're not, I mean, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're, you're trying to run with something inside your own organization, or you're trying to, you know, rejigger the way things work at home, like whatever, whatever change it is that we're trying to make, we're going to be on the receiving end of doubt. We're going to be on the receiving end of rejection. That's why it's an, it's an inevitable part of the thing. And so I think, trying to do that alone, I think is, is I don't, I, I have not found many people who are successful with that. They, they tend to have, you know, a few people. I, 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 I spent uh, quite a bit of time in, in, in the kingdom of Bhutan and I've been doing some work with, with Bhutan as of late. And a reason I'm fascinated with Bhutan is because they measure progress there based on what they call gross national happiness. So gross domestic product is, is part of the equation but they believe that it's part of a, a much more holistic uh, way to measure whether the government is doing an effective job, which is, are, are the people trending up in happiness or are they trending down in happiness? And if they're trending down, then what do we need to do? And so for that reason, you know, Bhutan is one of the only countries that is, is carbon negative right now. Like you step off the plane, you feel like you're breathing fresh air for the, for the very first time. The water is pristine. It's, it's, it's just, it's really, really, it's really beautiful. And, and they do everything they can to like keep it clean. Healthcare is a priority. Education is a priority. And, and, uh, and, but the, the thing that I found that was really surprising to me is I, I, when I was on the ground, I asked, is there one question that you can ask someone when you're doing your surveying and doing your research to figure out whether that person is, is happy overall? And they said, yeah, there tends to be one question that we can ask to really get a good indicator. And that question is, if you were in real trouble, 
who could you call and know with 100% certainty they would be there for you? And they believe that that circle is, is a huge, huge indicator for happiness, right? Just, just having people that you can call upon. And so th their job as a government is, is in large part to facilitate that, right? To facilitate the sense of community. But it really comes back to what we're talking about with, with, with running with our ideas. We, we, don't, we don't do it alone. We, we, we do it with other people that we trust and that, that trust us. And we form these special relationships, uh, a circle of people that we can go to and be honest with and fail in front of. That's how it works. That's how, that's how success is made. Which is almost counter of what we are taught in America, which is like, don't show your weaknesses, kick ass, you know, be brave. And I think it, it's a disservice to people to understand, to be truly sort of what they perceive as successful, powerful, vital, all these things. It's to have all of this, what you're talking about. So two last things. One thing I, I, I just want to bring up that I thought was important in this time, you talked about because good ideas might come from somebody who's more shy or not as, as uh, outspoken, that this time in particular, when yeah. they're presenting ideas more online, and it's actually more about the focuses on the idea and not who's presenting the idea, that this is a wonderful time for people who maybe aren't as you know boy, boisterous or kind of can take over the room with voice volume for their ideas to break through and come through and get recognized. So I, I just want to bring that up because I've, I heard you say that and I thought that that was really powerful, a powerful thing to remind people right now, yeah. um, especially if you're more, you know, sort of quiet and, um, you know, but yet yeah. full of ideas. You know, it's such a good, I mean, it's such an important thing, I think, for leaders who are people who are on the other side, where they're, where they're evaluating people and evaluating ideas. Oftentimes, it's very tempting for us to tune into the style um, and to tune out the substance. Whereas I think great leaders, great listeners, and great leaders are great listeners, is that they've learned to, I think, in large part, tune out the style or at least tune it down and tune up the substance. Like, what is the meaning behind what people are saying? You know, my grandma, who, who would always say, like, people who you know, speak with an accent don't think with an accent. And what you're really trying to do is you're trying to really get to what is the meaning behind what someone is saying? Like, forget about the style. And, um, but we're, but we're very, as human beings, we tend to be very persuaded by style. And so we need to proactively, I think, check ourselves and say, you know, am I really paying attention to what this person means, even if they don't have a style that's resonating with what, with what we have. And I do think that some of the tools that we picked up during a lot of what's happened over the past year. I think has been helpful with that. You're seeing more companies now, for example, start to do what they call brain writing instead of brainstorming, where what they're doing is they're having people submit ideas through written format rather than getting inside a room where, you know, you know, we call it brainstorming, but the reality is that it's just a few people who have the loudest voices who tend to be sort of the table pounders that are kind of hogging the conversation. But, but as we know, like, you know, loudness never has been and, and never will be a signal for intelligence. We all have, we all have ideas, even though we may have different styles that, that, and, and what I have found is that companies who have adopted this brain writing and, and they are now starting to find that the best ideas are often coming from the people who are the shyest, who had never spoken up before, but now they feel like they have a voice. And I think that that's something that we need to continue. 
you know, well beyond, uh, you know, when we return, when that happens back to normal, I think that there are some things that we learned that we need to keep in place. And part of it is like, how do we pull ideas from everywhere? So in ending this, which I, I could go on and on because I, I just really appreciate the information because it is, it's tools, right? It's how do we get, help each other with tools? Like, hey, I've been down this road. I use this tool. It was really helpful. Um, oh, you've been down that road. What tool are you using? I think that that's so important. Your book, are you, re, do you read your own book on, on the Audible? On Audible, yeah, I did. Yeah, you should. Yeah. You should. Um, for sure. So if, if uh, in ending this conversation, I know how much work it takes to write a book and I know you're naturally curious and you were doing it for your own real reasons. What was, you know, what were you hoping when you wrote the book and you said, okay, I'm going to put it out there. Was there anything in particular you thought if someone walks away with something that really, that you were hoping they would get from backable um, now are both, both, uh, versions of the book out uh, February 23rd, correct? Yeah, but everything's out on February 23rd. And, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, Gabby, there, there was, and, and it's, it's, you know, every, every morning, my, my second grader and I play, I have this little routine and I ask her, what is the meaning of life? And she says to find your gift. And I say, well, what is the purpose of life? And she says, to give it away. And it's all based on this quote that I love from Picasso and, and we made a little game out of it. But I, I, I think that uh, backable is really about how we give our gift away. And how do we take that thing that's inside of us and how do we, how do we share it with the world? Because I think the, that there is a lot of tragedy that comes with unused creativity. Right. There's so much that we have that we sort of keep behind. And I, I think I think what it really means to live a full fulfilled life is to kind of bring that out. And the, the golden rule that I like to keep in mind and the thing that I, I, if I could pass sort of one thing on to my daughters, if it was like, hey, like you get one piece of advice now, what's it, what's it going to be? It would be that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. Amen. Sunil Gupta, I thank you for your time and, and uh, make sure, you know, for those of you listening uh, to get the backable book. Thank you. No, thanks for having me, Gabby. This has been great. I'm interested in all things that support us. And one of them is our financial life. That can be very, very stressful. And if we learned anything uh, last year, we, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And that's why I'm really excited to share with you a company called Upstart. Now, Upstart, let's say you have multiple credit cards and you're trying to track multiple balances and due dates and website logins. All of it can really be stressful. So Upstart makes things simple with one monthly payment from one place. Uh, it's a fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt. It's all online. So whether you're paying off credit cards or consolidating maybe some high interest debt or funding even personal expenses, there's already over half a million people that use Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. They will find smarter rates with trusted partners because when you do do the assessment, they assess more than just your credit score. So with a five minute online rate check, you can see your rate right up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day and even receive funds as fast as one business day. If debt is feeling like it's taking over your life, and that is a lot to manage, especially with everything else going on, 
it's really time to get that fresh start with Upstart. So find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash Gabby. That's upstart.com slash Gabby. Don't forget to use our URL to let people know that I sent you. And loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Head to upstart.com slash Gabby. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.